Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. As a mom of four kids in New York City and a writer myself, I know all too well how short everyone is on time, so I'm here to help. I'm going to interview authors and writers of all types about their work, especially as it relates to parenting and family issues. Hopefully you can listen while doing 8 million other things and fall in love with these talented scribes and their fantastic books, essays, and songs like I have, plus get some tips on surviving parenthood. For more about me, you can check out my essays at zibbyowens.com. This episode has been sponsored by Chloe's Fruit, the cool way to eat fruit. Their website is chloesfruit.com. I'm very excited to be chatting with Christina Alger this morning. Christina, a former financial analyst and corporate attorney, is the author of two wonderful novels, The Darlings and This Was Not the Plan. She has another novel, The Banker's Wife, coming out this summer, and she's a mom of two kids. You can read more about her on her website, christinaalger.com. So welcome to Christina. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's start by talking about New York, which we were just doing beforehand. Um, As you know, I'm a native New Yorker, too. Um, Christina and I both went to the same preschool and have kids there as well. Um, One of the first things you mentioned in your bio is that you're a native New Yorker. How much do you feel that informs your writing? I know your books are all set in the city, but... Do you think giving being a native New Yorker gives you a different point of view from someone who came here later in life? So I think, yeah, it does inform our reading. And I think that's why I think it's the first thing I say in my bio. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I say. Yeah, yeah. And I will say I hate writing bios. I find them really stressful because I never really know what it's so hard to explain who you are in three sentences or less. And I never really know what people want to hear. But I do think New York features so heavily in all my books that it's sort of important for me to explain that I've been here for, you know, 38 plus years. And I think that's why I'm so fascinated by the people that live here. And there's so many stories worth telling that are in New York. That's why I sort of obsessively write about it. So, um, yes, that's why I mentioned it in my bio right off the bat. You do such a good job. The scene in The Darlings with the 
the intro scene even of the benefit where it's just like I could have been in that that you were describing. <laughs> I was like, this is crazy. This is like just so, it's just so accurate. It's like um, your depiction of New York. Um, but anyway, you say uh, in The Darlings about when one of the characters is thinking about moving, um, the husband says, Meryl would never go for it. He didn't even want to ask her. New York wasn't just a city to Meryl. It was a part of her being. Is that how you feel about it? And uh, how can you explain how deeply ingrained the city is to its natives? <laughs> you know, it's well, we, as we were just discussing, yeah. my husband and I have sort of almost moved out of New York a bunch of times and then have always found a reason to stay. And, I, you know, there's that wonderful John Updike quote that says, you know, people in New York think that anyone who lives anywhere else is in some sense joking. And I think <laughs> a lot of New Yorkers sort of feel that way. And it's New York living here is such a unique experience. I mean, it's a walking city. You know, it's it's very stressful to live here, but I think it's really rewarding. And so it's hard, I think, once you've had this experience to see yourself living elsewhere. And um, I, there's not a New Yorker I know who doesn't think about moving out all the time because it is so stressful to live here. So I feel like there's a lot of, we all have this sort of internal struggle of, you know, the pros of living here are amazing. The cons are serious cons. And there's this internal struggle. And so you see... I think literally every character I have in all my books is going through it because I've been going through it, you know, I'm 38 and I've been going through it my whole life. So, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with New York and I think a lot of people do too. So. Yeah, as I was mentioning, I feel the same way. <laughs> um, although I still think it's nice to walk out the door and always run into someone because I think for most people who grew up in New York and so many people stay here versus perhaps other yes. places that it becomes communities just build on top of each other. Yeah, which is, you know, it's funny. Jonathan is so fascinated by how sort of small towny the Upper Jonathan, East Side is. Husband, yes, is my husband, here? sorry, is from L.A. And, you know, L.A. is so spread out and it's very transient. People sort of come and go. And he's sort of mesmerized by the fact that I went to the same school for 13 years and all my best friends still live in the neighborhood and, you know, all my mom's friends still yeah. live in the neighborhood. And, you know, we can't walk down the street without running into people. And there's something really small towny about it. I think totally. New York is sort of micro local in that way. And it's, I, you know, I, I find that I, I love that about New York, but you know, I could see how it would get annoying as well. <laughs> and my daughter this morning, we passed somebody I, you know, went to school with and she's like, you know, so many people here. <laughs> I'm like, I know you will too one day. Um, when you write about female friendships in The Darlings, you say, Ines, is that pronounced right? Ines? Yes, Ines. Ines f felt strongly that women were rarely friends with one another unless they could get something out of it. Female friendships were like strategic alliances. Each party had to bring something to the table in order to maintain equity. Do you feel this way, and have you seen <laughs> women behaving this way? Is that how you came up with that? Is well, it New York that makes women behave that way? So I will say Ines is like a totally loathsome character. I mean, she's she's very strategic. So I think, you know, that's her viewpoint on the world. Um, so I am, I'm not Ines. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly don't feel that way about my own female friendships. Um, but yes, I think the city is, you know, New York is a very type A competitive place. And I think there are a lot of people that see everything as a competition and everything as a strategic alliance. And it's kind of one of the fascinating things about living here. I mean, it's a very merit-based place in a lot of ways because I think you know um, people respect hard work here and they respect kind of scrappiness and um, but there are a lot of very cutthroat people and Inez is one of them and so that's sort of how she views the world um, and yeah I don't think there's any woman who lives in New York who would not say they don't know women that see the world that way um, and I don't know if it's particular I, you know I don't think it's particular to women I think men too 
Um, but yes, I think the flip side of it is, you know, female alliances are extremely powerful. And, you know, when they're, you know, born out of love and affection and respect, they bear amazing fruit. And I've definitely, you know, I have my best friends are other moms here, people I grew up with here. And so I think there are a lot of amazing women in the city also. And, you know, this podcast is sort of a testament to that. So. <laughs> did you uh, did you read Wednesday Martin's Primates of Park Avenue? I did not read it. I did not. <laughs> I did read um, an article that she wrote. And, you know, I that book troubled me because I felt that it was sort of mean-spirited. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I've actually been criticized for um, uh, again and again is that, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for my characters, even the really despicable ones. And so, you know, Inez is someone who I think is sort of, you know, of that ilk, the very kind of socialite New York woman. But I have a lot of sympathy for her, too, and I try and paint all my characters with a sympathetic brush. And um, my understanding of that book was that that didn't, I'm not sure Wednesday Martin did that, um, <laughs> as her, paint her characters as sympathetically. So I didn't read it because I didn't want to get myself upset. Yeah. <laughs> I, I read it and actually ended up interviewing her for Avenue Magazine. Oh, and, like, okay. How would, to task on wow. some of the things. I want to so. interview you about yeah. that. Okay. <laughs> anyway, more on that later. But um, Okay, now just to move for a minute to This Was Not the Plan, which is also so good. Uh, you tell the story from a man's point of view, Charlie Goldwyn. Um, was doing this difficult? You were just so in it, in his head, writing this, yeah. this piece. And um, I know you had mentioned at one point... Um, you had seen your husband coping with his lack of paternity leave when you mm-hmm. had your baby. Um, but how how did you get into his headspace so so well? And what was it like for you? Well, I thank you. I don't I still don't know if I did it effectively or not, but it was really it's really hard. I think it's something that you can't take lightly when you try and, you know, um, move into the headspace of someone who's very different than yourself. And I think what I came to the conclusion was that Charlie is actually a lot like me. He's like a very sort of, I was a very type A sort of workaholic lawyer. And, you know, when I had my daughter, we had a very troubled pregnancy. um, And she was born early, and she had a lot of medical complications. And it just became clear right away that I was not going to be able to just go back to work as I had planned. And that was extremely disorienting for me, because I'm someone who's always really identified myself through my work. And, you know, but I what I thought was so fascinating was, you know, my husband did not get to take a year off. And I mean, I did, and it was, you know, at great detriment to my career. I gave back in advance that I had already started working on a book for. And, but, you know, people understood, they understood that I was a mom and I was a mom of a child that had medical issues and people were very understanding. And I, with my husband, you know, he was back in the office three days later and there was something I found so, um, you know, troublesome about the fact that no one talks about that. And there are so many wonderful books. And this is the reason I chose to write about Charlie and not a woman like Charlie is that I think there are a lot of fabulous books that talk about motherhood and the challenges of being a working mom. And there's a lot of, you know, very funny fiction about it. And I didn't really see that happening um, with fathers. And so I came up with this idea kind of I don't know, during some late night breastfeeding session when I hadn't slept in like 40 days. And I was like, I don't know if this is a good idea, but it would be so interesting to write about a guy who's doing this by himself and really has to figure out how to be both a parent and kind of a successful man. And that's something that's 
been important to him his whole life. And, um, you know, I, I talked to a lot of single dads, which was also totally fascinating when I was writing it. Um, cause I wanted to make sure I was really getting the nuances of their experience. Right. And I made my husband read things over and over <laughs> and over again. Um, and you know, it's, it's hard to write from a male perspective, but, um, but it was fun too. And I think, um, you know, Charlie and I are probably more similar than we are not similar. So hopefully not with a big drunken <laughs> outburst. At the no, ho- that's at the not party. how I left my law firm. <laughs> although a lot of people have asked, um, no, but it's funny, you know, my, I did feel like, you know, in, in a totally different and kind of less humorous way, but my career was completely derailed by parenthood as I'm, I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. And so, yeah, you know, I, I relate to that experience where like one day you feel like you're on this particular track and the next day you're not, and you have to figure out what that means and, you know, how to reconcile it. So, and the definition of a successful career. I mean, I would argue you're having the sort of renaissance of a career with the writing versus being a lawyer. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. It's, you know, I was lucky that I had started writing before I had kids because I felt like I had a little bit of wiggle room to bounce back um, after, you know, the year that I sort of went down this rabbit hole of being just a full-time parent. Um, But, you know, um, I never, I never could have had, like, this career now is something that I couldn't have done at my law firm Right. And so I'm really grateful that I have a job that's flexible and project based. And so, and ultimately you see Charlie find his way into something like that too. But law firm life is, you know, it's very all consuming. And I think it's sort of fundamentally hard to balance with parenthood. So it was something I was interested in writing about. I love how um, it was his wife who had passed away his birthday and everybody kept asking him how he was doing, but it was about a case. About, yeah. Not, about her birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, um, so tell me more about A Banker's Wife, which is your book coming out this summer. I think you said July 3rd. Yeah, July 3rd. Um, I'm really excited about it. It's, um, so it's funny. So The Darlings, I always saw The Darlings as a financial thriller. Um, although, I don't know, I think it was described sort of as somewhere between a thriller and a social drama. Um, but I always thought it, thought of it as a thriller. And that's sort of what I read and what I, I, it's primarily what I read. And so I always, um thought that I would go back to writing that kind of book. So The Banker's Wife is just a pure financial thriller. It's um, about a leak, a a data leak that comes out of a Swiss bank. And it's told from two perspectives. Um, One is the wife of a banker who goes missing. And the other is a journalist that's sort of investigating this behemoth of a Swiss bank that um, has a lot of very shady clients. So it was really fun to write. And it's sort of, I think, what I will be writing Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. 
Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything – it might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11, and it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help, and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Moms Don't Have Time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Moms Don't Have Time. And going forward, um, so um, yeah, I'm really excited about it and it comes out in a few months. That's awesome. What are some books that you are some of your favorites? So I, you know, I try and ping pong between um, kind of more literary fiction and thrillers, Um but there are a lot of crossovers. I like. I, I love reading John Grisham. I think his early stuff is brilliant. I love Lee Child. I love Nelson DeMille. Um, and then, you know, I, um, as I was telling you, I have this book club, and I'm trying to make it all in all female authors. Um, so Janice Lee has come. She's incredible. Um, I loved Pachinko. I would die of happiness if she would come to our book club. Um, so I don't know. I sort of go back and forth, but um, I'm a big I'm a big buyer of what I see as kind of upmarket thrillers, like literary thrillers, and that's what I aspire to write. So. Awesome. Throughout your books, or at least through these books and the preview of the next book, uh, death seems to be a very big theme for you. Uncle Morty dying early on in The Darlings, Charlie's wife dying and this was not the plan, and now the plane crashing at the beginning of The Banker's Wife. I'm not giving anything away by saying all this. Um, your characters are all shown coping with the loss of someone that they care about. I just wanted to see, you know, what's what's that about? Have you lost someone close to you that makes you want to delve into this deeper? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I so I always tell people that I feel like writing is cheaper than therapy, <laughs> and it's, like, equally cathartic. Um, so, you know, I, I started my... I feel like my life was very much defined by the fact that my father died on September 11th and he, it was, I was a week into my senior year at college. And at the time I thought I was going to go be an English professor. I studied medieval literature at Harvard, which is totally useless in every possible way, except for if you want to go get a PhD in medieval literature. And I was sort of on this very particular track. And then my dad died in this very dramatic and tragic way so and well thank so you I it's um you know it's something that um it was very defining for me and 
immediately my perspective changed and I wanted to move back to New York and I wanted to get a job where my mom didn't have to worry about me making money. So I took a job at Goldman Sachs, Mm -hmm. which was sort of insane because I was terrible at math and knew nothing except for Anglo-Saxon poetry. And um, I spent my 20s really grappling with the loss of my dad. Um, And, you know, I think I'm still grappling with it. It's um, I'm not sure it's something, you know, you ever really get over, but it's been a very defining part of my adult life. And so, yes, it's a theme that I think keeps coming up over and over in my books. Um, But I also think, you know, I think they're at the end of the day, they're not that many things worth writing about. (laughs) Like, I think grief and loss is one of them. And so, you know, maybe it's just the books that I choose to read, but I find that grief and loss are often, you know, sort of, they're universal themes, and I think they're themes that almost everyone relates to. Um, and it isn't necessarily about who who it is in particular, but, um, you know, I think I think most people by middle age, as as we are, have experienced loss in some way. And middle age, stop. <laughs> stop. Um, early, early, I don't know, early middle age, late young adultness um, <laughs> have experienced loss. So I think it's, you know, it's a topic that I'm interested in. And um, I also, you know, I think one of the ways I, I grappled with my dad dying young was reading and books that I felt like um, relayed that experience in a way that I, I, you know, resonated with me, um, were so helpful. And so, um, I just like, I remember reading Joan Didion's books, which are Mm -hmm. incredibly hard to read in some ways, but they're so, they're so well said. I mean, you're like, I couldn't say this better if I tried. And I, you know, if I can do that for one other person, that's awesome to be able to make someone feel like, you know, there are books out there that talk about this experience and see their characters through the other side of grief. And so I think that's important to me also. I, uh, I lost my college roommate and best friend on 9-11. Oh, wow. And I've written a lot about that experience too. I feel like writing per your comment about therapy. <laughs> yes, been, I know. Um, really helpful. So, and I was also, I was at Harvard Business School then. Oh, really? So we should have, wow. I wish I, I had know. known you. I know. Yeah, just to, um, anyway. Uh, but this is what happens when you're a New Yorker, right? <laughs> I when know. you have a big a catastrophe in New York. <laughs> yeah, the world is, is very small. Um, can you tell me a little more about your writing process? Like, paint us a picture. Where do you write? When? How often? Oh, when God, do you share? I it? wish... <laughs> Do you, you know, have a process? It's funny. I'm in this book club with a bunch of um, crime writers, and I'm the youngest one, and I'm the least successful. And I'm, I think, the only woman, although there are a couple of female journalists. But it's so funny to hear the guys in our group talk about their process because they are not parents of small children, and so they, like, all have their own office, and they go, and, like, some of them will, like, stay up all night drinking. And <laughs> I'm like, God, that sounds sort of <laughs> fabulous and bohemian. Um, that is not my process. It's been really, it's really hard to write with kids. I mean, you have to kind of force, you know, you can't wait for the muse to inspire you because you have so few hours in the day. Um, So what I found is I actually can't really write for more than three or four hours a day. I start kind of just writing nonsense. Um, So I try and write first thing in the morning. And by that, I mean, like three hours after everyone's awake and out the door, um, and so, you know, most mornings I go to a quiet place, and by that I mean like Starbucks or a library, and I sit and I try and work until about lunchtime. 
and then I usually go for a walk or do something to clear my head and then I pick my kids up from school and it's different I mean you know I that's sort of what I aspire to do five days a week but you know life gets in the way a lot so um it's not you know it's a it's a work in progress and then I do tend to edit and do kind of less um intense sort of brain work after my kids are asleep so my kids are little so they're asleep by 7 30 and so yes I know it is nice although they get up very early but my husband and I have sort of taken to it's I don't I can't decide if it's like deeply romantic or like deeply unromantic but we will get takeout and just sit and work together at the dining room table after they're asleep and um you know it sort of is what it is and it's this phase of life but um but it's, you know, kind of the best I can do at this point. And are you working on a new book now? or what are you I am. To? I am. So I'm working on a book called Snowbird, which um, I, I signed a two-book deal after The Banker's Wife. So I theoretically should be working on this book and then another book after that. Um, but I'm sort of halfway through it. And um, it's a thriller. It's set out in Long Island. Um, and, um, yeah, it's it's been really fun. Um, it's a little hard when you're coming up into a book tour mm-hmm. to like toggle between the two books. So I found that to be a little bit challenging because I'm starting to do press for Banker's Wife and I have to juggle that with, you know, my work in progress. But um, but I can't complain. I love writing. So it's like my hobby that is actually my job. That's awesome. Did you have to sell the idea of the second book of the two book deal? Like, do you already know what that no. one is? No. So, no. It's actually, it's so funny. I just signed my contract, although we negotiated the deal a while ago, and it just says, like, untitled, and it's, like, this total blank slate, thank God, because I can't think that far ahead. Although, I do have ideas, and my editor is amazing, and so we, you know, we obviously, like, kicked around ideas before signing the contract. So, I have a few ideas that are sort of percolating, but um, I'm trying to stay focused on book four and not think too hard about book five. And you mentioned also um, your books have been optioned into movies. So we, well, we limited to shows, yeah. So The Darlings, we um, we actually developed it and we got pretty far down the road developing it for HBO into a show. Um, and I was really involved with that process and then it sort of died on the vine as many shows do. Um, but it was really fun. And so at some point I'd like to write screenplays um, more. I think The Banker's Wife, we are working on selling it to um, as a show as well. And it's I have conceded that I'm not a professional screenwriter. And so this time around, especially given that I have two other books that I've been contracted for, I, I do not want to write the screenplay. I want someone, as I keep saying to my agent, I want a real screenwriter to write it. So um, I'm not sure how involved I'll be with it if it does get made into something but um but I love being part of that process it's really fun and I think I write in a very cinematic way I sort of tend to visualize every scene and my chapters tend to correlate with like a you know a particular scene and I can sort of see it in the movie reel in my head so it's you know fun to think about it getting made into something yeah that's awesome um do you have any advice to aspiring novelists and any advice to someone thinking of moving to New York? Oh, wow. Um, well, Very different. <laughs> aspiring novelists. Yeah, I mean, I, I talk to a lot of aspiring novelists, and I always say to them just, first of all, you know, it's sort of like I feel like writing a novel is, you know, you have 
I'm sure everyone has friends in LA that they've heard about who write screenplays in like five days and, um, you know, or journalists who, you know, turn over an article a week or whatever it is. And novels are, you know, they're a labor of love. I mean, you're sort of chipping away very slowly at something that gets built over a year, 10 years. And I think you just have to stick with it. And it sometimes feels very daunting when you're writing, you know, a thousand words a day and, your goal is 80,000 words. Um, But, you know, I think um, one of the things I've told a lot of people is I think agents are hungry for finished products. And I think a lot of agents and editors see a lot of kind of half-baked projects where people want reassurance, as I did when I was writing The Darlings, that someone would buy it if I was, you know, spent the time to finish it. But I think people are routinely surprised, in my opinion, by how eager agents are for products that are just finished Mm -hmm. and you know books evolve so much during the editorial process and so I always say just get it out like get the story out get it out on paper and finish it and then you can go back and polish it Um, and I tell myself this all the time because my sort of type a OCD like personality I always want to go back and edit everything but I think if you can just get the full draft on paper someone will want to read it I really believe that so um you know go go write um as to for people that want to live live in New York or move to New York, I think New York New York is so weird. I feel like people either love it or they hate it, and it's pretty clear right away if it's for you or not. Um, I actually don't think like native New Yorkers are actually people who have been living here their whole lives. I think native New Yorkers are people that like take to this lifestyle really quickly. Like my parents were the New Yorkiest people you've ever met in your life, and. My mom grew up in Havana, and my dad grew up in Brussels. And But, like, you could not find two more New York people. I mean, they would never live anywhere else. Like, the idea that my mom would live anywhere else is just an anathema to her. And so I think people sort of take to the vibrancy and rhythm of the city, or they don't. And you, I, I think you figure it out pretty quickly. Um, so it's, like, a very manic, um, high-energy place, and... If that's what you're looking for, this is the place to be. And if it's not, um, I think it can be very overwhelming. Um, but I don't know. I think everyone should try and live in New York once in their life. I said to my mom once, because um, she spends a lot of time in Arizona, I was like, Have you, why don't you sell your apartment? What, what do you think? And she was like, New York is my home. home I know. This is my home. Are you kidding? <laughs> Even if I spend time elsewhere, this is it. This is my home. So. Um, so I get it. <laughs> yeah. My mom is, you know, she's not leaving. She's, she's going nowhere. Yeah. So she's like, you know, every time one of her friends moves to Florida or whatever, she's like, they're crazy. What are they thinking? I'm like, Oh, I don't know. It's pretty nice down there. But, um, yeah, I think New Yorkers is always, you'll always come back here. Wow. Well, thank you so much. For no, it was a total pleasure. Being on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And thanks to everybody for listening, uh, to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books sponsored by Chloe's Fruit. Thanks so much. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.